Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and I'm your host for Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Eric Larson, author of The Devil in the White City and Dead Wake. His most recent book is The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz, published by our friends at Crown. Eric, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. It's an honor to have you here. And Eric, you write in your note to readers at the beginning of this book that you were inspired to write The Splendid in the Vile after you moved to Manhattan when you came to understand how different the experience of September 11th must have been for those who lived in New York City than it was for the rest of us in the United States of America who were watching the tragedy unfold on television. Can you explain how this inspired you to write about a man that so much has been written about already? Yeah, um, this this, this revelation um, you know, happened when we moved to Manhattan. Probably by, I would say it was in 2014. Uh, we didn't actually occupy our apartment at that point, but we, we were in Manhattan. And I don't even know how, how it sort of came to me, but I, I just suddenly realized, wow, if I'd been here for September 11th in, in my neighborhood, the, the place where we had bought our place, it would have been a completely different experience. I would have seen fire trucks. I would have seen ambulances. I would have seen probably smoke way downtown, even though I'm, I live way way uptown, you know. And that made me start thinking, um, you know, what what would it have been like? I've always been interested in the, the blitz or the bombing of, of London. Mm-hmm. And that made me think, you know, what would that have been like if I'd been in in London and this had gone on for, you know, essentially 57 nights in a row, Mm. plus um, an intensifying series of raids after that. Mm. And then, you know, as these things go, you know, one thing leads to another. I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to try to capture a sense of that in a book? Well, how do I do that? Who would be my characters? And it occurred to me, Churchill. Mm. He'd be ideal because, uh, you know, people tend to write about him. You know, often, of course, but in a very different way. They write about him as the, you know, this guy who sort of almost single-handedly, you know, won the war or fought the war. When, in fact, the reality, as I found as I did my research, is very different. You know, mm-hmm. he had his family to think about. His family helped him, supported him. He had to help and support them. Um, his advisors were involved, and there was just the business of day-to-day survival that uh, nobody had really written about before. So I thought, hey, this could be very interesting. Thank you so much, Eric. And on November 10th, 1932, Stanley Baldwin, the Deputy Prime Minister of England, said while addressing the House of Commons, I think it is well for the man in the street to realize that there is no power on earth that can protect him from being bombed. Whatever people may tell him, the bomber will always get through. The only effective defense lay in offense, he said, which means that you have to kill more women and children more quickly than the enemy if you want to save yourselves. Eric, can you please contextualize this quote within the story you were about to tell us about Winston Churchill and England's struggle against Nazi Germany? Yeah, the reason that's important to know is that even before World War II actually began, even before the bombers you know, arrived over over London, there was concern about bombers, concern about advances in aerial warfare. Um, bombers had been used in World War One, um, as had uh, zeppelins, you know, armed with, loaded with bombs, and um, and so the, the you know strategists knew that with with the advances in weaponry, that bombers would again be used in the next war and, and this time it would be a wholly different sort of a situation because mm-hmm. 
you know, armaments had been developed to, to a, a, a much more advanced point. Mm. So, uh, so that was sort of to set the stage to say, you know, um, the, they knew this was going to happen. They knew this something like this could happen. Mm. Didn't know where it was going to come from. Didn't know who the enemy was going to be. Mm. You know, at that point, honestly, um, it could have been France. It could have been anybody. Europe was Europe, and it was explosive no matter what, mm. or could be potentially explosive. Um, so it was important to know that, um, that, that they were sort of thinking ahead to that kind of catastrophe. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And this book opens in 1940. Yep. Winston Churchill is rising to power as the Prime Minister of England, but he himself has immense personal debts. How did this affect his position? Well, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about Churchill is that he was always sort of, well, there's so many interesting things about Churchill. Mm -hmm. One of them is that throughout his career, really, he was hard up for money. Mm -hmm. Hard up for money. He, he lived well. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't make a lot in his official salaries. Um, lived beyond his means, mm. and had to compensate um, actually by by often by by writing. He, he, he wrote uh, just you know tons of books um, and uh, some good, some okay, mm -hmm. you know. But he did it for money. Mm. And then um, comes the war, and it turns out that he's actually really in significant debt, and he's facing a, a, a really large um, debt to a bank that's about to call his, you know, he, he has a big interest payment that's due to a bank. Mm. And, you know, does it affect him? Does it affect how he, how he runs the government? No, not at that point, but it's something that is obviously an irritant to him, so he just asks one of his lieutenants, says, look, essentially, lose this debt. Yeah. Lose this debt. And his fixer does, does through a, through a, a, a gift from a very wealthy ally. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And part of the picture you paint of Winston Churchill early in this book, The Splendid and the Vile, is that he was a man of many quirks. He often conducted meetings from the bath or in the nude, and he hated whistling. Uh, can you tell us about these aspects of Winston Churchill's personality? Yeah, I mean, well, that's a lot of what drew me to him. I mean, just the fact that he, he's, he's really kind of a funky guy, you mm -hmm. know, and he was very... He was not at all um, vain. I mean, what you see is what you get, and actually probably a lot more than you wanted to get, mm -hmm. you know, when he's walking mm -hmm. around naked. But mm -hmm. but he did have uh, a lot of foibles. You mentioned, uh, you know, whistling. He hated whistling. Mm -hmm. He hated the sound of hammering. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite thing about him is that he would he would often um, he loved martial music he loved mm. music he loved he loved you know Gilbert and Sullivan and, and the Wizard of Oz music mm. and all that and uh, but the martial music you know, periodically he would be marching around uh, his uh, his house uh, 10 Downing Street or his prime ministerial country estate checkers and he'd be marching to the martial music you know with a gun you know parading and and uh, sometimes doing so while wearing a garish silk dragon mm. nightgown over what he called his siren suit, a, a, mm. a light blue sort of one-piece uh, jumpsuit-like thing that, that, that he had designed for rapid wearing, like, like mm. a, you could pull it on very quickly in case of an air raid or something. Mm. So things like that just uh, to me made him very human, very funny, very vivid guy. Mm. He was not easy to work for. He was, um, he was his staff sec secretariat, his, his staff of male private secretaries. Um, they found him to be inconsiderate. Uh, they knew him to be rude, uh, capricious, but he was a lot of fun to work for. And they, they all loved him. Thank you so much. 
Eric, in her journals, Mary Churchill writes, London's social life was lively. Despite the blackout, theaters were full, there were plenty of nightclubs for late night dancing after restaurants closed, and many people still gave dinner parties, often organized around a son on leave. This is one of the most striking aspects of this book, the degree to which London's social life carried on in the midst of these intense bombings by German planes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that struck me also is that, and, and, and again, this cuts to the theme I was trying to explore in the book, and you know, to, to make it sort of a reduce it to a, a kind of a pat marketing phrase if you will forgive me but you know it's the way i think about it is you know it's, i've always said to you know it's one thing to say carry on mm-hmm. it's another thing to do it mm-hmm. um but they did it you know they they uh, in the midst of all this chaos there were there were dinner parties lunch parties you know and and one of my favorite things is is the fact that the annual debutante ball Mm-hmm. You know, was held each year regardless. I mean, mm-hmm. in 1940, it was before the bombings began, before mm-hmm. the war intensified. But in 1941, the early part of the year, which is still part of the book, uh, the debutante balls still happened. Mm-hmm. It was underground, you know, in what was thought to be a reinforced um, uh, ballroom. But it still happened. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love the idea of all this going on when, you know, chaos is descending. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Eric. Listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Eric Larson. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Eric Larson, author of The Splendid and the Vile, published by our friends at Crown. Eric, most of this book is concerned with Winston Churchill's struggle to get Roosevelt and the United States of America involved in England's war with Germany. Why was this such a chore? Well, from the beginning, he understood a a fundamental reality of the war, which was that England standing alone could not prevail. It might be able to to fight Germany to a stalemate, Mm. But it, he, he believed it could, not, it could not be victorious without U.S. help. Mm. And that meant overcoming U.S. resistance to the idea of getting involved in a European war. There was a lot of, you know, what's called isolationism. 
there was a lot of resistance in America to getting into a war. Um, Roosevelt um, seemed to understand also that, that it, America's participation was probably going to be inevitable, but if it were just up to him, that'd be fine, but it wasn't. It was up to the country, and the country was not ready. You know? mm-hmm. So there was this... Churchill, on the one hand, tried to had to uh, essentially recruit Roosevelt's help. Roosevelt um, couldn't do anything without somehow preparing the American people or, or forces or events preparing the American people. So it was this, 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 this real tug of war in, in different directions. But it was crucial to Churchill to win Roosevelt's um, aid. Yeah, absolutely. And can you imagine this type of scenario playing out today between the United States and England? Well, you know, the United States. This is this is when the so-called special relationship was 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 established. Mm-hmm. Um, I think situation today is is very different politically. Um, it, it it almost it, it it just defies comparison. I mean, you, know, you got you got you got. Well, you got Trump, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got uh, Britain with its own Brexit issues and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, if Britain were threatened with some overwhelming foe today, like let's say Russia, mm. um, would Britain turn to America? Most likely, well, they, they, they probably want to, but I, I don't think America would be there to help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'd probably be helping Putin right. I mean, Trump, mm-hmm. you know. But anyway, they, I, don't, I, don't, I think the comparison is a difficult comparison. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank it you. It was crucial um, in the day, though. It was crucial back in World War II, early, those early days. For sure. For, uh, for Churchill to win uh, Roosevelt's attention. Yes, sir. Thank you. One thing that fascinates me is Churchill's leveraging of the situation in the Middle East to get Roosevelt to commit. Can you provide us with some context? Well, the Middle East, um, he wasn't. The Middle East was sort of a tricky situation for Churchill vis-a-vis Roosevelt. Um, Roosevelt did not feel that the Middle East. Yeah, you know, Churchill felt that one important battlefield was going to be the Middle East in terms of taking on Germany directly or German and Italian forces directly. Uh, Roosevelt didn't really agree. Roosevelt felt that maybe the Middle East was kind of not that necessary to, to go to the hilt on. And Churchill, you know, bridled at that. Churchill felt that, 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 that the Middle East was very, very important. And so that's where that, that's where that's, it didn't really, didn't really figure in whether Roosevelt was going to join the effort or not. But, um, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. And Winston Churchill, um, of course, Eric is known for his way with words. He is oftentimes credited with providing the English people with courage to persevere through this war, though he would say that he was simply magnifying what courage was already there. Can you imagine Donald Trump rising to the occasion in such a way, or Boris Johnson, and for that matter, what recent politicians can you imagine rising to such an occasion? Yeah, you know, um, this is one of the things that... um I felt during during my my work on the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I started it before the, the, the election that put Trump in office. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <clears throat> so the conception the conception of the book had nothing to do with mm-hmm. Trump. But interestingly, you know, once once the Trump became president, which I don't nobody imagined could could happen. Mm-hmm. Once he became president, um, yeah, I was struck time and again by uh, on a daily basis by how different. 
Churchill was mm-hmm. from from Trump and what a leader Churchill was in comparison. And so, you know, can I imagine Trump being able to do that to to rally courage and, and unify the nation? No. Mm. He's made no effort to so far and, and seems absolutely intent on going the other direction. Yeah. Who do I think could? I mean, not Boris Johnson. Um, I, I don't know much about Boris Johnson, so mm. I, I can't really comment sure. on that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm sure that there are leaders out there. I mean, I, we don't really know how Macron or Trudeau would perform in a, in a crisis, but they seem like, like good level-headed guys. I'll tell you who would be, who would, who would be good, in a, would have been in a, in a crisis like that is Obama. Obama's mm. a very caring, warm man mm. and uh, would have been very reassuring mm. you know, in a situation that required reassurance. Absolutely. It magnifies the importance of a leader's rhetoric. Um, yes. I want to pivot from Winston Churchill for a moment and talk about Beaverbrook. Yeah. Uh, Beaverbrook is a fascinating character in this tale to me because he offered his resignation to Winston Churchill 14 times, yeah. uh, only the last of which was accepted. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Beaverbrook and who he was? Yeah, Beaverbrook to me was one of the most uh, most interesting characters. You know, I mean, while Mary Churchill was my favorite, Beaverbrook to me was infinitely compelling because he's, he's sort of this wild, dynamic, um, dynamic man who was an advisor to Churchill, was his his close friend. An excellent, um, uh, an excellent sounding board, um, but he was he was uh, like I say he was dynamic. I mean, you know, he jumped into arguments. He did this and that. He was a manipulator. He was a mover and shaker, you know, sometimes in some nefarious ways. Um, and uh, I thought he was terrific. What he did do, you know, he was put in charge of the uh, Churchill put him in charge of the the new Ministry of Aircraft Production because Churchill realized that that it was vital to have more fighter aircraft because if they were going to succeed against Germany they had to they had to win in the air mm. they had to defeat the German bombers because the, the the worry was that if 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 Germany was able to destroy the IRAF if they were able to destroy the the, um, the Britain's arms industries then invasion from Germany would be a slam dunk um, mm. despite the the British Navy so uh, Churchill put Beaverbrook in charge of the Ministry of Aircraft Production, where he worked wonders, by, by all counts, worked wonders. Maybe not as wonderful wonders as Beaverbrook himself promoted, but he, he, did, he did work wonders. Mm. Um, and then, and then uh, you know, at, at the height of things, he just suddenly turned around and, and quit. Mm-hmm. But there's more to the, the resignation story, and I'm going to leave that for readers. I mean, it's, I think it's a very interesting element of the relationship between Churchill and Beaverbrook. Absolutely. Thank you. And finally, there are many things that swayed this war, World War II, and it speaks to Winston Churchill's genius and charisma that he was able to hold England away from surrender to Germany. Uh, there was the mad flipping of Rudolf Hess, who fled Nazi Germany in an attempt to make peace with England. There was of course Pearl Harbor and there was Hitler trying to conquer England and Russia at the same time which of these circumstances if any ultimately swayed this war in the Allies favor and which of these was most important to Winston Churchill specifically well you know um, a lot of things came to play Um, when when Germany I think everybody everybody I think scholars agree now Mm -hmm. that 
that Germany's invasion of the Soviet Union was a as a, a gross tactical and strategic error. Mm -hmm. um, and probably in the long run, that's what most dragged dragged Hitler Hitler down. However, countervailing that, it's hard to tease apart which force is the most whatever in, in bringing the war to an end because at the same time there was Pearl Harbor which brought Roosevelt in America um, into the war swinging, you know, in a big way. And that was also ultimately, ultimately that was decisive. So, um, you know, it's a multitude of forces that, that conspired to, 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 to you know, to defeat Germany. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Listeners, I've been speaking with Eric Larson, author of The Splendid and the Vile, published by our friends at Crown. Eric will be joining us in Raleigh on March 1st to speak about The Splendid and the Vile. More information is available at www.quailridgebooks.com. Eric, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Eric Larson for joining me. Signed copies of The Splendid and The Vile can be pre-ordered in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com. The North Carolina Book Festival is February 21st through 23rd in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina, featuring your favorite local, national, and international best-selling and award-winning authors. More information can be found at www.ncbookfestival.com. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.